in our hearts right in this moment and want to acknowledge that we are praying to, speaking to, calling out to, and pleading with the one who is enthroned in heaven, surrounded by mighty beings that are countless. And as ominous and as wonderful and as majestic as the scene is of you surrounded by living creatures and elders and myriads upon myriads of angelic beings singing your praise, we are aware and we are overwhelmed by the simple fact that in the name of Jesus, we can have access to your ear. And so we want to cry out to you, the mighty one, um, the holy one of Israel, we want to ask that you would be gracious in this moment to us. Not just this moment, but just in the lives of your people, both individually and collectively. Lord, we acknowledge, and you know this better than anybody, that there are always forces of darkness at work. There are always lies to be undone and uh, enemies to um, love and pray for. Um, so you know the battle, and I pray that we would take that battle seriously as believers and as a community of believers. We pray that we would be wise and able to discern the difference between what is worldly and what is biblical. I pray, Lord, that you'd grant humility enough this morning for us to analyze our own hearts and where we're out of line with your word, that we would humbly and joyfully just hand you the reins of, of, our, of our choices and decisions and just desiring to be faithful followers of Jesus in this, this time you've called us, you've designed us to live in. So I, I just pray for this in that time. I pray that your word would be met with an open heart and allow me to present it with, with accuracy and, um, and power. In the name of Jesus and by the power of Holy Spirit, we pray, Father. Amen. Amen. So when I was a, a child, uh, I was given a lot of, of do's and don'ts as probably you were. That is, you were given directives and commands. So I had certain commands I still remember to this day. One is, thou shalt not walk into the street in front of my house. Um, my parents still live along the street that I grew up in, Gallardi Road. It's a country road, and people would just, like, speed by our house. And unfortunately, a number of our family dogs met their end on that street. So my mom said, no going in the street. I understood stood that command crystal clear, don't go in the street. The other one was don't go in the creek, or actually it's a, like an irrigation ditch uh, that runs right behind the house. So you have a fast-moving road in front of the house, and you have a creek in the back of the house. She didn't want me to drown. So she said, that is a no-no, the creek. Don't even go near it. You know, funny thing is that she said no-no, go, don't go next to the no-no. For the longest time as a kid, I thought that was the English word for river or creek, no-no. <laughs> Only later realized, no, it's actually just... No and no. Um, another, a bit milder uh, directive or command was, you shall not eat Fruit Loops, except while camping. Occasionally, you can have Rice Krispies, and you can always eat Grape Nuts. So that's kind of my childhood, you know, and I think most of us are like that. We, it's a little bit like military life. You're given commands. You're expected to follow commands. Uh, and, and I want to add, I think that's that's important and it's 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 proper to teach kids young uh, who, who don't have the ability to think through things and so forth to give them commands and do's and don'ts and so forth but I noticed a switch in how my parents treated me from childhood to mid to late teens um, the rules were less um, and sometimes I'd come to my dad and I'd say hey I'm having a tough time deciding what I should do so can you help me out like Tell me what I should do in this situation. 
it was kind of a lazy way out. I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's like, like you're struggling with something. You just want someone to tell you what to do because you're either frustrated or confused. And my dad wouldn't give me an answer. That is, he typically, he went into this Socratic method and started asking me questions, like to get me to think through the, you know, the, the pros and the cons, the benefits versus the liabilities, the, the consequences of my choice, both short-term, long-term, um, and opportunities that the choice may or may not open for me. And, and I look back now, it was frustrating at the moment because I was just like, just tell me what to do. And he's like, no, I'm not going to tell you what to do because what he was trying to do is get me to think for myself. He's trying to get me to ask the questions related to pros and cons and consequences and opportunities and so forth. It was frustrating to me, but it was, I think, a healthy way of parenting, of trying to get your kids to think through things without just giving them the answer. We come to the Bible sometimes like that, too. We look for answers to complex issues. Sometimes the Bible gives us crystal clear answers to questions, like... Should I murder somebody? No, that's an obvious one. Uh, should I steal from people? No, it's just thou shalt not. We, there's clear clarity in Scripture on certain things. But then there are other things, especially as we continue through history that they didn't experience back then, questions that the Bible doesn't give explicit answers to. Like, I've been God on a limb here, doesn't say anything directly about vaccines or masks directly. Or, to the point of this letter, slavery. Some people are bothered by this, by the way. The fact that nowhere in Paul's writings or in the New Testament is there a condemnation of this institutional slavery in Roman, in Roman culture and society. Rather, by the way, it doesn't endorse it either. Paul instructs the slaves, this is how you act as a slave as a Christian towards your master. And he instructs the Christian master, this is how you're going to treat your slave. But nowhere is it explicitly condemned. But here we have in this little letter, the closest that we come to Paul's indirect condemnation of it. But he's not going to be explicit. He's going to provide truth by which Philemon, the master, can work through the issue. He's not just going to tell him what to do. It's not like a child. He's going to give him truth by which to arrive at the conclusion. And in so doing, provides an opportunity for transformation. Like if you think about it, to just to command somebody, command tends to be more coercive, more forceful. And there's a, there's a time and a place for that. Paul does at points command, use the word command. Especially in times of crisis, right? I mean, when your kid's out in the road, you need to say, get out of the road. No time for deliberation, no time for collaboration, no time for negotiation. Just get out of the road. When you're in the military and in the middle of a battle, there's no time to take a vote. No, you just give command, follow command. In a time of crisis, that's completely and utterly appropriate. But it doesn't provide a lot of time for reflection, consideration, change of mind, heart, and what we would call overall transformation. So Paul, in this letter, addresses the issue indirectly in a way that I think is transformative and I think instructive, not only for how we should help each other grow, but also in a way that is we can take to our own lives, like, 
okay, so how can I take biblical truths and deal with a problem that it doesn't address explicitly and thereby grow, mature, and see our own lives transformed? So here we have, again, the issue for those who are joining us. This, uh, this is addressed to Philemon, a Christian slave owner. And the issue is his slave has run away and now converted to Jesus, and Paul is sending him back. And so you now have a tense situation. How is it going to be resolved? And as this, the title of the whole series, uh, I hope, conveys, is Paul does not cancel him out. But he affirms that your family... He says, I've prayed for you. I continue to pray for you for illumination. That was last week. So he's praying for God's grace to work. And now, finally, we're coming to his appeal. His appeal. And, um, and there's one major subject we're going to tackle this morning, and that is the center of his appeal. Now, let me read the passage, and then let's come back to the center of it. Paul writes, after his section on prayer, he says, accordingly... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Required is, means fitting or right. He knows what's right. Paul already has in his mind what needs to be done. But he's not going to command him to do it. Yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, child can mean an adult child. In this case, that's what it means. Onesimus is, a, is an adult. But Onesimus, who, whose father I became in my imprisonment, father spiritually, that is, Onesimus came to Christ through Paul's ministry, and so Paul sees him as kind of a spiritual father. So he's pleading, appealing for his spiritual son, Onesimus, to his master. You see? And notice, he says, I could command. I'm an apostle. I carry the weight and the authority that Christ has vested in me. I could tell you, free him. I could give the directive and the order, but I'm not going to do that. Again, command tends to be a little bit more coercive and forceful. An appeal, and it comes from above, by the way. An appeal, more comes from the side, is more persuasive and allows room for reflection, thought, prayer, time, so transformation can take place. That, that, is, a, that is a healthy, this is healthy. It, it, it's, it deals with the issues, but in a way that allows for transformation, not just like force. See, I mean, if, if we practice this as a community towards each other, as we deal with different issues, I think it'd be a lot different than we often see today. So at the center of it here is he's going to make his appeal to love. To love. That's the central subject. Love is, is the deciding factor here that you need to consider, Philemon. He's, he like jumps from the issue of slavery, like he skips right to the triple dog dare, right? So we're going to talk about love. And if you know the Bible, you know the scripture, you know the teachings of Jesus and what we just read in Paul. Paul is basically appealing to the highest absolute moral ethic in Christianity. That is love. And I'm going to break this into four because when we say love, it's such a generic word. You can think romance or you can think something completely different. So I want to give teeth to what Christian love is. And it's not easy. 
It's actually quite difficult. It requires the, the grace and the spirit of God to be at work in your life and heart to actually love this way. But the first thing I want you to note is that love is our highest moral absolute. Our highest moral absolute. When Jesus was asked, what's the most important command in the Bible? He responded in this way, and it has two parts. And I want you to notice that the command is singular, even though it has two parts to it. Jesus says this. This is the most important. This is the highest Christian moral principle. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love for God above all else and to love your neighbor like you love your body and take care of your body and so forth. And then he concludes with this. There is no other command, singular, he sees them two as one, greater than these, plural. Which tells you that this great command that has two parts hangs together. So you can say that you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, raise your hands in worship and write worship songs and preach. But if you don't love your neighbor, you violated the one command. In the same way, you can love your neighbor and do all kinds of benevolent things out in the community. But if you don't love God above all else, guess what? You violate the command. So those two parts are part of the same whole. So here, again, like I said, Paul is, he jumped right to the triple dog dare and said, we're going to talk about love. The absolute, ultimate ethic for the Christian life. Now, to dig this in a little bit, I want to provide a contrast. Not to bother you, but because sometimes we just need to be agitated, I guess. I think, functionally, for most Americans and for most American Christians, the highest ethic we have, again, functionally, is our commitment to freedom. Almost every controversy we could name in this room right now, from abortion to what's happening with the virus to gender issues, all of them surround this principle of freedom. All of them, an issue of freedom. And I, I want to hear you to hear me say freedom is absolutely important, and it's massive in the gospel. Like Jesus came to set us free. It's for freedom that I set you free. He came to set captives free. In many respects, we believe the gospel and preach the gospel because we want people to be freed from sin and death. So freedom is, is massively important to the gospel. But it's not our highest ethic. Paul doesn't say, you know what? Philemon, I'm not going to command you, but I'm going to appeal to freedom. And like I said, freedom is massively important. The very first, you know, verse of the Marine hymn is, first to fight for right and freedom, right? We believe in the, the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's right there. It's, it's, it's ingrained in us, which is a great thing. But we also know that we can't have unlimited freedom, do we? We see the devastation in our own country of this, this kind of, I can be free to do whatever I want, and that will ultimately lead not only to lawlessness, but oppression. Freedom has to be understood within the context of the Bible and creation. 
right? A fish is not free to live on land without dying. It has a context in which it's supposed to have experience freedom. It can't just do fly like a bird. It can't. To understand there are restrictions to freedom. And as soon as you break through those restrictions, you're dealing with an oppression. So here's a benign, apolitical, well, maybe it's not apolitical, I don't know, example. Uh, up until last year, um, people were allowed to bring their pets on planes, simply claiming that they are emotional support pets, right? Like a dog, small horse, you know, that kind of stuff. And for, 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 for dog owners who love the support of a, of, of a, pet, a pet, that freedom's wonderful. Freedom to take my pet on a plane. And I have a dog and I love my dog. But I also have a wife who's severely allergic to dogs, cats and horses. So one person's freedom to bring their giant St. Bernard, I'm being a bit facetious here, admittedly, to sit next to someone who is severely allergic, one person's freedom turns to another's misery. That's, we can't absolutize freedom. We can't. Freedom always has to serve our highest absolute ethic of love. Listen, I have the right to park my truck anywhere on Nephi Drive because it's a public road. But if I park it right in front of my neighbor, my neighbor's box, mailbox, so he can't actually get into the mailbox, I've allowed my freedom to violate what might be helpful and loving to my neighbor, you see? We always have to keep this in mind that freedom is not our highest ethic, which is one of the reasons I don't think Paul addresses it by, by, by way of freedom, the, the issue of slavery. He has something much higher that's being served than just the question of freedom. What is the loving thing to do? In some contexts, to free a slave meant a horrible life. And it might be in that context the right thing is to retain the person in your house to do his work because it's the most loving thing to do. He's operating from a completely different principle. You see, and that, that's, this is to think Christianly rather than thinking Americanly. Get it? I just made a word up. That's an adverb, right? I think one could argue, too, that Genesis chapter 3, the Great Rebellion, was a pursuit of freedom. You know, the devil comes along and says, did God really say? And she says, hmm, you mean I can be wise? I can have the same kind of freedom of knowledge that God has? And they reached for freedom and enslaved the whole race and doomed us to death. I have to be very careful, I think, to think Christianly, to think by way of what is our ultimate ethic, our morality. It is, in fact, this thing called love, to think through things in light of this. That's pretty profound, don't you think, especially for where we, where we live? Like, this is where rubber meets the road for me. It challenges me. It should challenge you, too. Sometimes... I'm not going to be free to say what I want to say. The best thing is to shut my mouth. At other times, the loving thing might be actually I need to speak up and say something that's going to cause conflict. Not because I want to hurt somebody, but because it's going to help somebody. 
That is, we weigh this by way of love. So, that's the first part and the longest part. The second thing we learn about love that gives teeth is this kind of love must be willing. Uh, That's why he says, "I, I could command you, but I'm not going to because it's for love's sake that I'm going to appeal to you. I want you to make a willing choice. Transformation of heart produces a willing choice to do what's right. He's not going to coerce him. He's not going to force him. He's not going to cancel him. He's going to appeal to him so that he can make a willing choice. That's, that's the logic behind this. I want you to make a right choice. And can you imagine? I've, Try to, parents try to do this with their kids. They try to force things, you know. It's like you come in and two siblings are fighting with each other. One's punching one. I was throwing blocks. And you're like, stop. Sit down. I want you to look at each other. And I want you to say, I'm sorry. And I love you. <laughs> and if you don't do it, you're going to be on time out for a year. Right? So those kids are sitting there with an ultimatum of a time out for a year. And you're saying, I want you to look at each other and say, I forgot. I'm sorry, I love you. And out of fear, they will clench their fists and they'll say, I'm sorry, and I love you. Is that love? You just chorused some words to come out that they don't mean. For love to be love, it's, it has to be a free choice. It has to be an authentic choice. It has to be a willing choice. That's the point. A willing Wow, that's pretty loud. (laughs) We have to recognize that for love to be love, it has to be willing. That's transformation from the inside out, not from the outside in. But the inside out is the Spirit of God uses truth to prompt change so that we make willing choices to do what's right. And let me add a, a, a corrective or a qualification here. Sometimes, I think, we equate willing choice with emotional congruence. That is to say, I'm not going to offer forgiveness until I don't feel angry anymore. Because I'm being inauthentic if I'm angry and offer forgiveness. As if your emotions and your choices have to align all the time. If we're waiting for our emotions to align with our choices, guess what? Emotions are driving the bus. And they're going to be all over the place. To be willing doesn't mean that you ignore emotions, much less let them lead you. But you humbly say, listen, this is how I'm feeling. I'm upset. But I know what my Savior commands of me. And that I am supposed to show love even to my enemy. And so I am going to make a choice in line with the truth and trust that the emotions will work out later. It's still a willing choice. Again, a corrective for us because we tend to be emotionally led people in our culture. No, we are truth led, not emotionally led. Let the emotions work out later on, right? Thank you. I'm having fun this morning, by the way. So. Uh, three. Uh, this is obvious. Love is others oriented. Like in the context, you know, Paul's saying, in the, in the equation of things and how you're going to process your returning slave who's now your brother, um, you need to think of him first. 
I mean, that's, that's the nature of Christian love. It's not about self first, and we know this. It's about God first, the other first, and then me. Now, there need to be qualifications for that, lest one become a doormat, which I'm not going to have, I don't have time to make. But the simple principle is true. God first, Onesipus second, and then Philemon third. I got to think of him more than I'm thinking of myself. Now, let's just, again, put this in perspective. Philemon is probably a Roman citizen because he owns a slave, which means he has rights and privileges as a Roman citizen that other people don't have. By way of Roman law, he had a right to a slave. He's my slave. He could have at this moment insisted on his first Roman amendment to the Constitution. It's my right to have a slave. And Paul's basically saying, listen, the love that Father showed us and the love that we're supposed to show each other means you've got to consider him first. How is your, how is your decision going to better him as a person? And how is, it going to, how is it going to affect the church? He's coming back into the family as a Christian now, not just a runaway slave. So how is your decision about love going to impact or how, how you deal with him? How is it going to impact the whole family? And how is it going to impact the witness of the gospel outside the family? Like, you, you have to think of yourself second to that and ask yourself those important questions. What would love do for him and for the church at large and for the community that would watch how the church is handling this situation? Again, this is, I think, basic biblical truth about love. I mean, it's what Jesus embodied. He said, well, actually, this is the 1 Corinthians 13. I don't know if you've noticed this, but the, the profile of love given in that 1 Corinthians 13, it's fundamentally selfless. Love is patient. That means you're putting the timetable of somebody else first as opposed to yourself and your timetable and your task management. Let me ask you, husbands, when your wife's going a little too slow getting ready in the morning and you need to be somewhere and you try to pressure her like, we got to go, how does that work for you? <laughs> Never works well. Because, but in that moment, guess what? Your timetable is prior to hers and you are putting yourself first. Now, again, qualifications are needed because if you're habitually late because your wife takes too long, well, then there's another conversation because now there's other people that are impacted. So, again, qualifications are always needed. But love is patient means you're considering another person first. Or so you, you take the, the others. It's like, does not envy or boast. Envy is, is, is fundamentally self-centered. You want what somebody else has, you feel like you deserve it, and you're mad about it. Self-centered. Or boastfulness. Hey, this is who I am. I'm wonderful. I, I make the best chili in the world. That last one's not a boast, by the way. That's just the truth. <laughs> just having fun. Is it, it, it basically, you say that, that love itself is others-oriented. That's the whole point of 1 Corinthians 13. It's not about your particular use of your gift for your own exaltation. It's about your gift and use to other people. This is argument in Corinthians um, 13. Jesus himself told us, he said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for money. Put himself in a lower position. And he, he, he provided this, you know, this 
active illustration when he takes a slave's cloth towel and ties it around his waist, gets down on his hands and his knees and washes the dirty feet of sinners. That's someone who considers the dirty disciples more than in that moment, the fact that he's the son of God and rightful heir to the throne of God. See, that's, that's the essence of Christian love. It's not about you first. And to take that into the equation, love is our absolute highest ethic, moral ethic, for it to be genuine, it has to be willing. We have to take that into consideration when dealing with other people and ourselves. And here it considers others first. But then lastly, and this is the flip side of point number three. Is that love is self-sacrificing. Others first is the flip side. But this is the self-sacrifice element to it. I want you to notice something in verse 9 that is kind of intriguing if you think about it. Paul says, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. And then there's this like parenthesis. It's like, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Why did he put that in there? Because he comes back to the appeal after that. Why add that little bit about, you know, I'm Paul the apostle. And by the way, I'm old, which means I'm weak and I'm in prison. Except that he's kind of subtly indirectly reminding Philemon my service to Jesus in the gospel and that's the gospel of love you know God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and so forth that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life my service to the gospel and to the love for people through the gospel has ended me old weak and in prison he's reminding him of the sacrifice that's been made for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of people a way of reminding him once again, okay, so if you liberate your slave, it's going to cost you something. It's going to be a sacrifice. Isn't that what love does? There's a subtle way of saying this. That's what love does. Love sacrifices when, when it's for the good of another person. It's not just we consider them as more important, it's also that we're willing to sacrifice, and that's something that's difficult to do. He's going to sacrifice a slave and make him free. But that's what Christian love does, doesn't it? I love the fact that when we think about sacrifice, we always have to remind ourselves of the ultimate sacrifice, and sacrifice is, 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 the, is embodied in the very way in which God came to us. Don't, don't read this yet. Now you're going to read it. I should never say that because that's exactly what you do. It's like telling a kid, don't, don't think about cookies. No, start thinking about cookies. No, you think about this. Who is God? Philippians chapter 2. God, with infinite freedom, God emptied himself in the person of Jesus. He relinquished divine rights. He humbled himself, taking on the form of, in Greek, it's slave. The God who becomes slave and dies on a cross for the sake of you and me. That is the, that, that is the sacrifice that God himself made by God becomes slave, sovereign becomes slave for the sake of people, 
Paul encourages the Ephesians chapter 5 again, be imitators of God. Like, what does God do? Well, God in Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's the part of the love of God that... Part of what love is is self-sacrificing. Now, again, it's easy to say that. You're like, yeah, that's great, Dan. So let's just plunge that in just a little bit. This is the final point. I've heard this before, and it doesn't come from anyone that I can see here this morning. So I'm not thinking of you. But I've heard people over the years say, Christian people say, well, I would love to go minister to that person. But that person is emotionally draining to me. And some might go a little farther and say, I just don't feel like that person is emotionally safe. Because they make these little belittling barbs, and so I just don't feel safe, emotionally safe around him or her. And so I'm just going to hang back and let somebody else do it. So wait, what you're telling me is you can't manage to sacrifice a little bit of an emotional drain to minister to people? Man, imagine if Jesus had that, had that mentality. It's like, well, you know, it's emotionally safe to go to the cross, unsafe. Like, is, is that robust Christianity? No, I don't think so. I think that's pansy Christianity, quite frankly. Like the willingness to say, listen, I know God wants me to be there. It's not going to be easy. It might blow back in my face a little bit, but guess what? Your Savior went to a cross for you. Again, there needs to be qualifications for that. Just don't want to be stupid or unwise. But to me, we're trending in the opposite direction than this kind of robust. All right, Lord, you've asked us to analyze these situations with love. We want it to be willing. Um, we want it to place the needs of others before our own, and we need to be willing to sacrifice. That's, that's, that's love right there. I don't know about you, but I have to hear that. I need to hear that. And as we, we deal with issues, this is, the, this, is, this is where it all comes, boils down to. It's like when we, we deal with issues, and everybody has an issue in here. You're probably facing some kind of tension with your boss or somebody in your family or a mom or sister or husband. I don't know, or a wax wife. How are you going to respond? To me, this is a wonderful lesson. We're going to bring this situation, whatever it is, and you know what it is, we are going to bring it to this great word of what it means to love another person, the highest moral absolute of the Christian life. And we are going to work it through and then decide this is what we're going to do. This is how I'm going to respond. Imagine if each one of us, as we face different situations all around us, were to go through the process of analyzing it in light of what God teaches about his love. I think we'd be in a different place. Maybe you're already there. Or maybe you're not there and you're like, wait, I needed to hear that. Lord, I pray you'd help me to do that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word and how illuminating it is for our human situations that we find ourselves. I pray that you would give us that sense of robust passion and love for people that's willing to do what you call us to do and not shy away from it. Um, and to be careful in how we think and how we approach people and relationships. 
we want transformation, Lord. We won't want coercion. We don't want force. We want people to experience the freedom and the wonder of your work in our lives through your spirit and through grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.